Hey everybody! Today is again one of those special days with a special guest, Simon Erickson, founder and CEO of 7 investingcom here is with me. As you guys know, 7 Investing team have their own stock picking and knowledge sharing service on 7investing.com, but also they have their portfolio on Stockcars Portfolio Center. So I'm very excited to have Simon again with me and we're going to talk about China, China's opportunities and risks. If you are interested to invest in China or if you already have invested in China. Simon, say hi to Stock Guardians and let's get the conversation going. Hey, Stock Guardians and hey, Hoda. I'm so glad to be here with you again. Looking forward to talking about China today. Thanks so much for coming back to the show. So let's just jump into it. I have some investments in China. I recently picked up some Alibaba taking advantage of the lower prices. I used to also have more investments in China, but I sold them um, a few months back. Uh, what about you? Do you have any personal exposure to China and Chinese stocks? I sure do, Hoda. I'm excited about the, the big tech companies. I think you're getting kind of historic valuations like you and I have chatted about before. I used to, in my former life, invest in small cap Chinese companies. I'm staying away from that sector now. I'm playing with the bigger boys that are the larger market caps and also the biotech sector I'm very excited about in China as well. Oh, that's pretty cool. We should talk about biotech because I don't have any exposure to Chinese biotech, but I'm, I want to hear from you why you are excited about that. But first, before we jump in, let's just talk about some of the challenges that everybody is worried about. Every time on our Facebook group, on Twitter, or you know, just chatting with our community, um, we talk about it, Chinese stocks, people come up with some concerns, which are truly deserved. One, uh, and the big one is related to government and regulation. We've seen the government cracking down on mobile payments. We've seen government cracking down on cryptocurrency digital payments. We've seen them cracking down on online education. So what would prevent government from cracking down on any other sector which could impact any of these stocks that we would want to invest in or have already invested? As an investor, are you worried about that? Like, What goes through your mind when you think about investing in China when it comes to regulation challenges? Absolutely, I worry about that as an investor. This is erratic. And it's, it's China wants to have control over its population and over its businesses. And so the erratic part of regulations, when we say it that way, is you don't really know what's going on behind the curtain, what's going on behind those closed doors when they're discussing what they need to regulate and what they need to change out there. And then all of a sudden, there's a regulation that happens and everybody's scrambling to catch back up with it. We saw this recently, Hoda, in a bunch of different places. But I mean, just as one example, how about its, its younger generation, right? In China now, it just declared anyone that's under 18 years old can only access video games three hours a week you know, in certain time blocks. I mean, stuff like that, you don't see stuff like that coming. Of course, that hits the reset button if you're an investor that's counting on recurring revenues and recurring stability of cash flows. To have something like that completely change your investing thesis, it's always a challenge. It's something we, we certainly, there's a lot of long tail risk and there's a lot of erratic regulations if you're investing in any Chinese company. Personally, how I deal with it, and I'll, I'll share, and I'd love to hear how you you personally deal with it, is that I always say, well, my my goal or my time horizon is always long term. I'm betting on, let's say I bought some Alibaba and recently on the future of Alibaba in the next 10 years or 15 years, that's sort of like my long term point of view. And then I think to myself and say, what are the regulatory challenges, regulatory challenges exist right now? 
I believe Chinese government will resolve it at some point, and that's because I've seen how much the government is focused on the prosperity of their society, and they don't want to step back. Yes, temporarily, maybe they're trying to re reshuffle things and figure out what's going on in their whole ecosystem of technology and startups and companies and all that good stuff, but I believe give them 10 years, give them 15 years, they must be figuring out how to deal with this just because the government is very ambitious about their prosperity of their nation as, as a whole. So that's sort of my counter argument. And I say, yes, there's all these challenges, but I think if I wait long enough, it's gonna be good. But maybe I'm very naive about that. What is your point of view when it comes to, how do you resolve in your mind that it's okay, despite all these regulatory challenges, you would still invest in it? I, I agree with you. I actually believe the exact same thing that it is gonna get worked out and large companies are going to adapt. And by the way, it's not just China that's struggling with this regulatory frameworks and the relationships that they have with tech companies, right? How is Facebook and Amazon going through the same scrutiny here in the United States, right? It's figuring out what do we need to regulate these guys? It's just that China has a very different government structure on how they do that. And my perspective is the same as yours, Hoda, that large companies that are more diversified are less exposed to those erratic changes in regulations. If you're a small cap and you're all in on one small revenue stream and all of a sudden the government snaps that, you're toast. But if you're Alibaba, if you're Tencent, if you've got you know, a holdings companies, uh, not, not only even within China, but within most of Southeast Asia, a lot of the, the ownership of the companies they have is all over that entire region. Uh, it, it's a little bit less pronounced when something like that changes. Yeah, I'm with you. That makes a lot of sense. The point you brought up, like I never thought about it in the context of, yes, U.S. is also going through the same challenges from a regulatory point of view because these technology companies are becoming so big that they have a force to that play a big role in the society. And all governments around the world are dealing with this. It just sounds like because we don't know the philosophy behind the government of China and what they're doing and all that good stuff, it's difficult to trust because it's so far, right? Like for us sitting here in California, in, 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 in US, wherever in US we are, uh, it's very difficult to kind of figure out, oh, okay, government of China is going to do, try to do the best for their own nation. Um, I think that sort of being in distance makes it a little bit difficult to believe that it's going to get resolved at some point in the future. Yeah, and there's kind of different world internets, right? You've got Europe that wants to regulate very heavily, uh, the General Data Privacy Regulations, GDPR, uh, that we saw over there, of course, kind of restrictive on that. America's got a much more entrepreneurial open internet, I would say, and China's is, of course, very restrictive and very heavy on censorship. This is why I think it kind of bothers me when we see these comparisons of it is the blank company of China. Right. And we saw this all the time. We've, we've heard about it kind of like Aichi has been called the Netflix of China. But you can't say things like that, Hoda. I mean, censorship over in China is so much heavier about what kind of movies even a producer can make. A lot of it is even just kind of propaganda. If the government doesn't like it or is anything critical of the government itself, it's not going to be allowed to show for the populace. And so I think that a lot of these translations that we make in our minds of, oh, we can just take a, a, a business model that worked in the United States photocopy and Xerox it and then plug it in over to China doesn't work that way. Completely different country and completely different regulations. I agree. Uh, the other thing in helped me, Simon, to decide that I'm okay with investing in China, I think it was this conversation with Charlie Munger about 
uh, they are, as you know, they, you know, Charlie Munger and Berkshire and obviously Warren Buffett, these guys have invested in China, in China's technology, China's renewable technology sector specifically. And I've, I've, I remember, uh, and I'm paraphrasing not exactly the code, but Charlie Munger was saying something along the line of, we don't, ex we shouldn't expect that the Chinese government is going to run their country the same as the U.S. government, but that's not a bad thing. They found the model that works for them, and they're going to figure it out. And we necessarily definition of success is not, or the methodology to achieve success is not the same for each nation. To your point, the Netflix in China, it's a totally different kind of content, totally different kind of a structure. So we can we can accept the same business model is going to work there. Uh, so that's why these comparisons don't work. But at the end of the day, they've proven and they've shown years and years of success and. Um, when you read their plan, their like five-year plan for their country, just their ambitions come through. It shows how much capital they put behind their country and their country's growth. And even figuring out how the regulation works. For me, I may not agree with some of the things they do, but you know, it's their nation and, and it's, they, they have the proof points to, to show that they've been able to grow. So that's another one, just accepting this is a different nation and our model here should have definitely for sure apply there their model wouldn't apply here but both models can succeed and create wealth for investors basically that's a great point hoda about perspective you know we always kind of look from the united states at how china's doing things it's almost got this negative connotation right like oh they're they're too restrictive or it's too too erratic with the regulations but at the end of the day they're, they're doing what's right for their country at least that the government thinks of there are certain sectors they are really knocking it out of the park in you know china Still 1.4 billion people uh, publishing more papers uh, and intellectual property about artificial intelligence than anywhere else in the world is right now. I mean, they're doing some things very, very right. And we should respect that certainly as uh, international investors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, so I'm mostly familiar with technology sectors, so the Alibabas and the payments and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you mentioned biotech in China. I don't know anything. I don't have any exposure to biotech in China. Specifically. I have a lot of like gene editing investments in the U.S., like Editas, and, you know, CRISPR and things like that, but not, don't know anything about biotech in China. Uh, so please tell me well, what's the opportunity and why I should um, pay attention to that. Yeah, kind of the big thing going on in healthcare and biotech right now, the buzzword is personalization, right? Or, or genetics and genomics. We always are, we're talking about DNA stuff these days, but there's a shortfall that there's not a whole lot of genetic diversity to work with. Uh, the drug makers, the drug developers that are making these new compounds that are um, basically targeting specific genes and ge genetic anomalies are working on the DNA of, of Europeans. You know, of white males uh, that are basically have been the ones that have been giving the, the blood samples for the DNA for them to, to work with. But the world's most populous country is China. There's, like we said, 1.4 billion people. So why aren't we making personalized medicines that would match the diversity that we have over in China? They have very different diseases than us. They have very different, you know, genetic uh, anomalies that are throughout the population. This is kind of like population genomics and uh, population health the fields of study of kind of how is the world differently and what kind of diseases is it getting more commonly? And so the biotechnology opportunity in China is just to say, okay, let's go and start getting some DNA uh, from people in the, in the Chinese population. Let's personalize the treatments for that region of the world. And let's go after, you know, the biggest concerns that they have um, for healthcare. 
And it's not necessarily the same things as we've seen in the United States. And you're starting to see companies like Beijing really go after developing novel medicines specifically for China, setting up the institutes over there, making sure that patients are being treated. Oncology, of course, a really big concern, no matter where in the world you live, but you're approaching it very differently based on the population that you're serving. And so biotech is, uh, you know, biotechnology, still a technology industry, but really kind of focused on healthcare and life sciences. I think it's really intriguing in China, not only because they're raising the bar uh, in terms of the standards and kind of their equivalent of the FDA of, of what needs to be shown for approval, uh, but also the, the insurance uh, reimbursement system over there is maturing quite a bit too. So you're attracting the interest of, of people who are really good in their field and are very specialized at this that want to go to China and bring some, some novel new medications over there. So are there some gene editing scientists and companies that are sort of like migrating their research or some of the research to China in order to be able to develop drugs customized to, to the gene, to gene formation and gene knowledge that is in that nation? Is that what, you, what you've seen happening? Yeah, one, one I'd encourage anyone watching the show to take a look at is, is actually called Beijing. It's kind of a funny name, right? You know, they put a clever spin on it. Ticker is uh, B-G-N-E for anyone who wants to follow it. It was uh, founded by an American, you know, John Oiler is from Baltimore. And uh, he said, hey, I want to go over and address this opportunity. Really, really smart guy. Got a PhD from, from MIT and said, you know, why can't we bring novel new medicines over to China, develop them locally, uh, take advantage of, you know, working with, with patients and with um, universities and hospitals that are over there. But he doesn't really approach healthcare as being necessarily region by region. Uh, he might see, yes, if we develop a new drug, we're going to have some applications for it based on the genetic diversity of China. But you, when you're developing something from uh, so far upstream, the, the fundamental science itself, you should launch something like that globally. And again, this is where China's approval process is becoming more and more important. Uh, if the bar is here, you don't want to just hit the bar when you're developing a new drug. You want to aim here so that you can now translate that to the rest of the world, including developed markets where the United States, like the United States, where the pricing is so much higher. Uh, fascinating. Fascinating to see the biotechnology company, companies evolve, especially the ones that are going after the opportunity in China. I took the a note of the ticker. I'm going to do some research personal on it. But yeah, I mean, I would say generally when I invest in biotech, I go with the spaces that are sort of shaping the future, like gene editing. But then the next step for me is always looking at cash availability of that stock, how, how well-funded that company is, and whether even if they can't raise enough money or more money in the next couple of months and quarters and years, can they afford keep going and keep developing? Because that's that's the risk, right? That's what they run out of money and they can't raise, or there's some regulatory hurdle, or they can't get their drug out on time, in time, or their clinical trial in time. And that's really where you, you know the stock can really nosedive. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good um, sector to look at. What other criteria do you usually use? So the segment or the sector, gene editing, country, China, uh, maybe you also look at cash. Is there anything else you look at in terms of management or the stage they are? Anything else specifically that the stock audience should look at if they're doing their research for China's uh, biotech? Uh, this is something that I'll plug my fellow advisor and my colleague, Max Chatsko, and Dana Abramovitz, too, who are really the, the biotech experts on our team. I do not profess to be a biotechnology expert, but they are. And go check out some of their coverage. 
But what they typically look at is clinical trial progress, right? So many of these smaller companies, especially our early stage where they might not even have any revenue yet, Hoda, you know, we're so used to talking in terms of price to sales or price to earnings. That's completely different in biotech world where you've got an early stage drug developer that has something in trials that shows promise, but you have no earnings, you have no revenues to look at. And so what uh, my team tends to look at is say, okay, what's the progress? You know, what is the alternative right now? What's the first line treatment the doctors are using versus what they could be using? Does the approach make sense? And if it's showing progress, what could the potential for this look like? And then typically biotech investors will look at one of a couple of things. One, it'll be a, a multiple of peak sales. If this commercializes in X year and it hits this percentage of the total market, you know, so it's going to be a peak sales of that, what multiple would the valuation look like for that? And then kind of working backwards from that, if you want to look at evaluation, the market generally discounts that to some degree based on decision trees. There is an X percentage probability of success of this new drug making it to market. And for phase one trials, that's less than 10%. For most of the drugs that are even starting trials, it's less than one in 10 will actually get commercialized. But again, there are some really big medical problems out there. Um, we've seen a lot of volatility in the biotech industry. But again, big drug developers would rather buy a promising new technology that's in phase two, phase three trials, rather than just kind of starting from scratch. It's more um, beneficial from them from a capital allocation perspective to go after the commercialization and the rights and the royalties rather than just kind of develop something from ground zero. Love it. I uh, just not saying I'll make sure I think you guys have done some um, uh, content and some videos on covering these sectors I believe I've seen it so I'll make sure I put a link to those videos on content so that the stock audience or anybody else who's watching you know, can get can go there and see your team's work um, so the next sort of topic that always comes up Simon when I have conversations about or the last time I talked about actually why I bought Baba a lot of our users and on our Facebook group and our Twitter or elsewhere um, mentioned uh, their concern was about when you invest in Chinese companies, you're not actually owning a shares of the company due to the legal structure because they, you know, maybe we can explain that quickly if you want and then just talk about whether you, do you have any concerns about that? Like, does that worry you? Because I have to say my point of view, it doesn't worry me at all because <laughs> I think there is enough legal structure to protect it and I'm not putting all of my net worth or not all of my life savings in one company. So it's the legal structure that is out of my control. And I think there is a lot of regulators and a lot of people who understand these things are looking at these legal structures and it's out of my control. I don't know much about it. I just feel the risk is justified, but I understand the risk is justified. That's sort of my justification. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, I just put it as a risk line item and let it go. But that's my, my point of view. So what about you? Uh, first of all, do you want to talk about what that legal structure concern is? And then how do you look at it? And does that concern you at all? Yeah, it goes back to exactly what you said, control. This is all about control. The, uh, the legal structure is called a variable interest entity. It's a VIE is the acronym for that. But it's exactly what you just said, Hoda. You're, you're not actually getting voting control or voting rights of the companies themselves that you're buying into. That's different in the United States, right? Say that you and I were all of a sudden uh, multi-billionaires and we suddenly get 60% voting control of Facebook. And you and I can, can now control the decisions of how the company is, is making it, it, what it's doing. We could vote out Mark Zuckerberg if we don't like him in there. We could say, we're gonna put all of our money into a dividend. 
I mean, like the control of the uh, of the voting, the percentage of outstanding shares, uh, especially for companies that only have one type of share, Class A shares, for example, is very important. And even tech companies in America have kind of gotten smart of saying we need to have multi-class structures so that we as the founders can preserve control and not get this pulled away from us. But that, but it is really important. You see activist investors all the time uh, trying to build up stakes so they can influence what the company is going to do with its money or the direction of it. And if you're buying into a Chinese company, even if you and I were to buy 60% of a Chinese company, we still do not get that same voting control like we would in an American company. Uh, it's a variable interest entity. That means basically you've got an economic interest. You do not get a voting control interest, and it's still going to remain in the sovereign interests of China. And so bigger picture, what this goes back to is China doesn't love the idea of international investors making the decisions on its, on its nationally domiciled companies, especially in its tech sector. It's okay with us giving money uh, to investing in those types of companies, but at the end of the day, it, it's it's not the same investing all other things considered um, in an American tech company versus a Chinese tech company. So uh, well, how do you deal with that risk yourself? So for me, as I said, I put it as a line item and I say, I would never at this, like I'm not that billionaire that you were explaining, I wish I was, but <laughs> so even if I, like because I'm not there, even if I'm investing in any company here, I would never have that much of a strong voting power to be able to influence it. So for me, it's almost similar risk knowing that based on what you explained right now, there nobody else can also can do that. So there won't be any uh, activist investor to get involved, to be able to change the direction if something's going on. But I'm not sure whether that's also a good thing or bad thing because sometimes activist investors getting involved in companies also not doing necessarily the best thing for the small shareholder, even if that was uh, allowed. So that's sort of my justification. What do, how do you deal with that? And how do you say that risk is justified, the legal structure for you when you invest in China? I agree. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not keeping me up at night. I don't really, really worry about this. Most of the time, individual investors are still a minority shareholder of large companies anyway, especially when you're starting to get into mid-cap and large-cap companies. I think that more of it's just a bigger picture question of, you know, what, what are you getting into when you're, when you're investing in a Chinese company? Uh, American shareholders, you know, you, you always chat with the CEO or the chairman of the board. They're saying, our goal is to maximize the valuation of our company. We want to return earnings per share for our shareholders. We want to make sure that our shareholders are taken care of doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one -one over to Chinese companies who might have the government saying, we want you to fit this role of, uh, of our ownership that we have in your, in your company. Or over there, they might have a completely different interest that is not aligned with just individual shareholders. China as a whole really is kind of, you, you keep seeing these made in China policies that the government comes up with, right? It wants domestic production of semiconductor chips. You know, it doesn't really want a whole lot of international investors now if it can attract a large enough pool of capital internally i mean these kind of bigger picture macroeconomic challenges um they're concerns but at the end of the day should you not invest in those companies because they're there i think that those concerns are still there 30 years from now and um and they're not going away overnight it's just something you have to kind of be comfortable with if you want to invest in this region of the world yeah that makes sense so knowing all these things, I guess, is there any other risk or other opportunities that we didn't talk about that, that comes to your mind uh, when it comes to investing in China? They're very big on live streaming, Hoda. You know, user-generated content, even though it's censored heavily over there, they're getting a huge audience. When you talk about online games, you know, League of Legends is kind of the ultimate team game that is played over the internet. 
This is getting an audience that's, that's almost approaching the NFL Super Bowl here in the United States. And of course, it's digitally sent across for everybody to watch online where you can collect a lot more data than you can if you're just watching a television on linear TV from your, from your sofa. And so digital advertising, huge opportunity in China. Monetizing live streamers and the brands that they're creating over in China, huge opportunity. China's Gen Z is incredibly tech savvy. They've grown up with smartphones in their pockets since they were at a young age. And yes, China is trying to restrict uh, the number of hours they can spend on video games every week. They're really big on, on eyesight. They believe that you know computer screens are damaging the eyesight of uh, its younger generation. But aside from the government trying to put the controls in place that it can, there's still a whole lot of demand organically from China's market that's very tech savvy and wants to be going out and creating things on the internet could be a really big opportunity for its advertising sector. Something that gets me very excited is just that idea of domestic consumption, right? Because it's just, even if they decide that they're gonna wholly focus, focus everything on internally, right? Like just answer the needs of their own population, there is so much opportunity left, right? And one of the reasons I invested in Alibaba was, I said to myself, even if they don't do anything else, none of the AWS kind of stuff, none of the mobile, payment, none of that stuff, even if it's just online retail, the online retail for the Chinese population themselves is growing double digit every year. So just the win that the company gets um, from just internal consumption, domestic consumption in some of these sectors like streaming, you mentioned, digital ad, all that stuff, there's a still massive amount of market opportunities left there that we would bank, we can bank on. And, you know, obviously everything else is cherry on top of the cake. Like if they can expand, if they grow internationally, all that good stuff. So just the nature of their market and how their market is consuming and growing by themselves, by itself, it's exciting and it presents a lot of opportunity. And that's get me excited uh, from an investor point of view. And I think the silver lining, back to what you were chatting with me about at the beginning of this conversation was, it's almost impossible to get a great valuation on a great company in the middle of the most optimistic of times, right? If everything was going perfectly over in China and all the tech companies are knocking it out of the park and their government regulars are saying, oh yeah, go ahead and do whatever you want to. You know, We're not gonna get in the way and interfere with anything. You're never going to get a company like that at a bargain. They're going to be selling at a premium because all the capital is going to move to where the profits are, are coming from. It's almost necessary for there to be uncertainty for you to get a, a deal on, on a really great company like Alibaba, like Tencent, like the companies you mentioned. There has to be the Masayoshi-san's, you know, Japanese SoftBank's uh, uh, chief investment officer saying, ah, I'm, I'm out of China, you know, it's too erratic. The Kathy Woods of ARK Invest saying, ah, you know, we don't want to invest in China right now. At, at the times that you see those comments in the media, if you are a long-term investor and you believe in the stories and you believe these companies are going to adapt, now's the time for China. If you think those companies are going to get through this and it's going to evolve and it's going to, at some point in the future, not crush them, you want to buy when stocks are at a, are at a bargain. And right now they are absolutely at a bargain. I think the ten, most attractive 10-year valuation multiples that I've seen uh, definitely over the last decade, at least for those big tech companies. Yeah, I agree with you. And I clearly remember when we didn't have like maybe three years ago, when we two years ago, when we didn't have like the US-China concerns and things like that, like the negotiations that was going on. We had people saying that, have I lost my chance to invest in China? Because everything was going so well, right? And now we should just kind of like a step back and say, we are the same investors who two years ago, we were like, 
kind of getting into the FOMO and like, have I lost the opportunity in China? And then we're, now we have to say, well, this is your opportunity to invest in China because the news is not as good. And they're growing through some things that, yes, is risky, but that's the cycle of uh, investing in long term, right? You, you get these opportunities to invest in sort of in the bottom and then enjoy the right uh, top. So that's, uh, that's pretty much, I guess, a good um, way to wrap it up. Do you want to give any news on what's happening on 7 Investing, what you guys are working on, uh, what else is coming on your side of the universe? Yeah, new picks are coming out on November 1st, Hoda. So we've all kind of been huddling together and saying, what are our best ideas in the stock market? Of course, we, we uh, share our quarterly best buy that we have with, with Stock Card. Uh, and that content's available on our own page that we have on your platform. That's our team's favorite pick every quarter that we're sharing. We're sharing the report with you guys as well. Uh, but we've been kind of huddling up and figuring out what are our best ideas right now across the diversity of sectors that we look at. November 1st, the new picks come out, Hoda. I'm excited. Awesome, November 1st. And every quarter, I think we just started um, on your uh, portfolio on the stock card side that we not only we add your pick or you guys add your pick to your portfolio, but we also make your detailed sort of exclusive, very deep. And I've never seen this much depth into research well packaged in a good in a good couple of pages in a PDF document. We're making that also available to all of the stock guardians who want to subscribe to Stockard VIP and get access to your portfolio here on Stockard. Uh, so between us and your own offering, I'm sure a lot there's a lot of excitement and people are waiting to see what, what you guys are working on next. And uh, as always, thanks for doing this uh, show and chatting with me and hopefully we'll have you back on the show soon. Oh, I love it, Hoda. I love what you're doing. I love what Stockcard represents, empowering individual investors to make better decisions. I'm glad to be a part of your show anytime. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Thank you, Simon. Have a great rest of the day.